If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to take them out and turn to the book of Nehemiah. I had promised early on that we were going to be going back to the book of uh, 1 Samuel, but I had time to think over vacation. That's always a dangerous thing. And as I got to think about the new year and about our church, I thought it would be helpful for us to study uh, the book of Nehemiah. Uh, It's something that I do quite a bit. Now, during the new year, the turn of the new year, more than likely, all of you were thinking about yourselves and about how you could uh, improve yourself over uh, this coming year. And so you made resolutions, uh, things that you need to do to make yourself better. And I was reminded that I need to do that this morning as I was uh, getting dressed and, and notching my belt. Uh, I, I'm used to notching the fourth, uh, the fourth little hole in the belt, and I only made it to the third one today. So I was reminded I, I got to do something about that uh, starting in this new year. But I don't just think about how to improve myself. It's my job to think about this church, to think about the way that we as a church operate, not for ourselves, not for our good, but for the sake of Jesus Christ here in Clinton, Louisiana, here in East Feliciana Parish, here in South Louisiana, uh, here in this region and in the United States and in the world, I think about those things. And I think about them in terms of our overall health as a church. Um, This new year, you're thinking about your health and the things you can do to improve your health. Well, we can think about this church and the overall health of the church. In American churches, we tend to think about our health as a church in two ways. uh, How is our attendance, first of all, and then how is the giving? How are the finances, right? We, We say, well, we're strong as long as the attendance is good and as long as finances are good. Well, uh, I am happy to say that our attendance has gone up over two years. We're seeing an increase in attendance, so that's good. And financially, we've actually seen uh, a huge increase in financial giving. Now, that's good for us, but if we stop there, then we don't really get down to the root of our overall health as a church. Um, And one of the things that I want to avoid is just looking at the numbers, the bare numbers, and saying that this is an indicator of us doing okay. And the reason for that is because the largest churches in the United States, the ones with the most attendance, are also, and the ones ones with the most money, happen to be the churches that are the least faithful to the scriptures, okay? So we need to be careful in just looking at those two numbers and saying that we are healthy because attendance is up and our finances are okay and stable. So there are two questions that I want to ask, and I want to ask this not just today, but over the next 10 weeks as we study the book of Nehemiah. Are we a healthy church, first of all? And then secondly, how long, if we are healthy, will we be a healthy church? Um, Because it's fine to be healthy for today, but what if next week we're not healthy? And those two questions, are I'm asking those questions and I'm looking at the scriptures as a way for us to gauge where we are and then where we're going to be in 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 years from now when none of us are here. I'm asking the question, will this church be a healthy church? Will this church be a church that is all about the glory of God and And we need to be thinking about those things today. 
Okay. Now, Nehemiah helps us in this because the book of Nehemiah gives us three things that I think are helpful. First of all, it gives us a plan for the building of God's church. A plan for the building of God's church. Secondly, he gives us a pattern for godly leadership. And then thirdly, and this is probably most importantly, he gives us the promise of God's victory. Uh, Those three points, a plan for building, a pattern for leadership, and a promise of victory, those aren't the three points for today's sermon. Those are the three points for the next ten sermons that we're going to have. Okay? Let me read this for us. We're going to read all of Nehemiah chapter 1. It's found on page 398 in your pew Bible if you want to follow along with us. This is God's good and kind word to you today. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Hislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanai, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night For the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you will return to me and keep my commandments and do them... Though your dispersed be uh, though your dispersed be under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there, and will bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy. In the sight of this man, now I was a cupbearer to the king. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help in understanding his word. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for giving us this word this morning. Lord, I pray that it would be the word that we need uh, to, to be encouraged in our faith of the Lord Jesus Christ and in his finished work, but also the continuing work that he promised to build his church and that the gates of hell would not stand against it. Father, I pray that you would encourage us to be a church who marches forth in courage, preaching and proclaiming the gospel by your grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to look at this passage in three ways. First of all, we see an honest assessment of the state of Jerusalem. Secondly, we're going to see an honest appeal from uh, Nehemiah in verses 4 through 10. And then finally, we see an honest, an honest audacity from Nehemiah. Honest 
audacity. I'll explain what that means as we get to it. In verses 1 through 3, we start off with an honest assessment of the state of Israel or Jerusalem. Uh, before we do that, we got to do a little bit of history. And for those of you that don't like history, I'm sorry, uh, but I need you to pay attention for at least three minutes here. Uh, Nehemiah is a book that is a companion to the book of Ezra. And Ezra comes right before it in our Bible. So you have Ezra and Nehemiah. They are actually considered one book. And so we are picking up right in the middle of the story. And the story starts with Ezra going back to Jerusalem to restore worship in the temple. And so the book of Ezra is all about Ezra and his attempt to do that, to restore worship in the temple. And then Nehemiah picks up 20 years later, after the worship has been restored, and Nehemiah is there in the capital of the Babylonian, or not the capital, but one of the cities, the great cities of the Babylonian Empire, Susa. It's it's a citadel city. It's kind of a vacation place for uh, the king. And, uh, and there is Nehemiah. He's in Susa. And these guys come from Jerusalem. His brother comes, his relatives come, and he asks, how is Jerusalem doing? Um, Nehemiah is a book that is given to us as wisdom literature. Typically, the way we think about a book like Nehemiah is that it's history. It's reporting something to us. But the ancient uh, Jewish people, they didn't think about it that way. Even today, Jewish people don't think about Nehemiah as history. It is wisdom literature. And if you had a Hebrew Bible, you would not find Nehemiah in the middle of your Old Testament. You would find it at the end. It would be Ezra, Nehemiah, and then Chronicles as the last book of your Old Testament. And the reason why it's put there is because it isn't a book that's reporting the history of the Israelites and in, in Nehemiah going back to establish the walls of Jerusalem and to rebuild the city, it is actually a book of wisdom for how you can live in light of what God is doing in the world that is marred by sin. It is actually a book of hope. And in God's wisdom, what he's done is he's given us this book to say, you look around and you look at the destruction that is in the world and all of the bad stuff that is happening. And he says, look to Nehemiah, look at what I did in his day. And I'm going to continue to build my church even today. So it's a book of hope. But in the midst of that hope, you see this devastating news. Um, God's people in Jerusalem are not doing well. But God's people in Susa, in the Babylonian, uh, in the Babylonian capital cities, and, and in the Babylonian Empire, are actually doing very well. So you have this sharp contrast. The place that God said He was going to dwell in Jerusalem with His people is in ruin, but everywhere else, God's people seem to be doing well. That's kind of the the background. That's the brief history of what's going to happen. So so Nehemiah has two questions to his brother. He says, tell me first of all about God's people, then secondly, tell me about God's place. Tell me about the people that are left in Israel, and then secondly, tell me about the place where God dwells in Jerusalem. Nehemiah expected, because Ezra had gone back 20 years before, he would expect now that Jerusalem would be a thriving community, that God's people because right worship had been established, that God's people now would be thriving as well. So 
with those two questions, how are God's people and how is God's place, that's the backdrop to what's about to to come down. He he mentions two things. You see that word in my my translation, it says in verse 3, the word, the remnant. Do you see that? The remnant. Um, He actually uses that word in verse 2. How are the remnant doing? How are the left behind ones? How are the ones that are still back there? How are they doing? That has a long history in the Old Testament. Even it goes all the way back to the Exodus. The ones that are left behind. And and he says, how are God's people doing? And God actually refers to, to his people as the left behind ones. That's why that left behind series that many of you read, it's, it's all wrong. Because the left behind ones aren't the, Christ, aren't, aren't the bad guys. It's the Christians that are the left behind ones according to the Old Testament. So, so here, the left behind ones, the remnant, how are they doing? Um, you can see 1 Kings chapter 19 also where God refers to his people as the remnant. How are they? Secondly, how is God's place? He cares about Jerusalem because that is where God had promised to dwell in all of his glory and all of his holiness. That is where he was supposed to dwell. And you see Nehemiah's heart here. He cares about God's people and he cares about God's place. Now get the picture of this. Nehemiah is living in Susa. He is living in the lap of luxury. He is living in the place where he is doing just fine without reference to anything happening in Jerusalem. But the whole time he is living in comfort in Susa, he is discomforted by the fact that God's people are not doing well. He, his concern isn't about himself, but his concern is about the glory of God over everything else. And he's concerned about God's agenda, not his own. I think that's important for us living as we do in luxury in the United States. Even the poorest among us is living in luxury. That's an important thing for us to remember as we are living here. We need to think about not our agenda, but God's agenda for his church and for his kingdom and think about the ways that we can help him in serving him for his agenda. Well, those are Nehemiah's two questions. How are God's people and how's God's place doing? And he gets... An honest answer, doesn't he? Verse 3, the remnant there in the province who had survived at the exile is in great trouble and shame. That's a word there that means they are exposed as if they are naked and exposed. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, Nehemiah's brother could have lied to him there and said, don't don't worry about it. Everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be okay. And Nehemiah just would have continued living out his life as he was in Susa. But Nehemiah needed to hear the truth and have an honest assessment of how the church in Jerusalem was doing. It would be like going to a doctor, your body full of cancer, and the doctor saying, you're going to be okay. Because, well, he just doesn't care enough about you to give you the honest truth. Well, here Nehemiah hears the honest truth so that he knows what needs to be done. We need to have an honest assessment of our church. You need to think about how this church is doing, not just on the surface level of the financials and the attendance, but how are we really and truly doing as God's people living here in Clinton, Louisiana? 
The name of our church is Faith Presbyterian Church. Are we truly living by faith or are we simply building ourselves up and propping ourselves up on the money that's in the bank account? Are we doing that as a church? Are you doing that at your homes? You need to have an honest assessment of how you're doing spiritually before the Lord. And that is what Nehemiah gets. The church is in ruin. Now, I don't think our church is in ruin. So guess what? We have a better place to build from than Nehemiah did. We need an honest assessment, and you need to think that over. Uh, Secondly, because Nehemiah gets an honest assessment of the church, he has an honest appeal in verses 4 through 10. And he prays, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, um, you have to go to chapter 2 to figure out how long he did this, but he actually doesn't just pray one day and then get up the next day and then forget everything he prayed. He prays for four long months. Uh, And that's where you see in chapter 2, verse 1, in Nisan, the the next month that's mentioned is four four months after this point. So he prays over and over and over. And what does he pray? Well, this is a beautiful prayer that he prays with seven different sections. For your sake, I will not go over those seven sections here this morning. Uh, I just want to point out three things to you out of this prayer this morning. Uh, First of all, Uh, Well, let me say before I look at those three things, um, what is Nehemiah's reaction to the church not doing well? He prays, he mourns, his heart is broken over it. Every year in June, whenever our denomination meets for its general assembly, at the same time we meet, the old liberal denomination that we came out of meets for their general assembly. And inevitably what happens while we're meeting That general assembly does something that is hokey or corny or just downright unbiblical. And then some of you hear about it and you say, what are you doing there in your general assembly? The Presbyterian church is doing these crazy things. Well, typically it's not us doing those crazy things. That old denomination of about a million and a half people gets way more press than our little denomination gets. But oftentimes when I hear about the things that that denomination does, instead of it breaking my heart... I oftentimes mock them. A couple of years ago, they had this opening ceremony where they invited pagan gods and pagan rituals into this big, massive worship service where they're just inviting all of these sorts of things. This is a church that used to proclaim the glory of God that now is saying, you can worship any God any way that you want to. And oftentimes what I do is I mock that. When in fact, my heart should be broken by that very thing. And I should be praying for that church. And it's to my shame that I mock them. It's to my shame that whenever I hear about other churches and they're not doing well, that I think, oh, we're doing pretty good. We must be okay. No, we need to be broken over the state of the church. Broken to the point of praying for it. And that's what Nehemiah does. So what are the three things that he does? Well, Nehemiah notices notice in verse 5, O oh Lord... God of heaven, great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love who, to those who love him and keep his commandments. Nehemiah begins to pray the sovereignty of God. Jerusalem is in ruin. And why is Jerusalem in, in ruin? Because God is the one ultimately that brought that ruin. 
He prays the sovereignty of God. He says, look, God, it is in the state that it is in because that is how you want it. Now, it is that way because we have sinned against you, and that's the second thing that he does. He, you have the sovereignty of God, but then also human responsibility. Human responsibility. That God prays that, he's, or Nehemiah prays that God is sovereign over Jerusalem's destruction, but also we are responsible for that destruction. So he prays and makes a corporate confession about this, his sin and the sin of his fathers. And so he prays, he says, Lord, we have sinned against you. That's why most weeks we do have corporate confession of sin here, because we need to be reminded that we need to confess our sins before God. And that's what Nehemiah does. He says, I have sinned against you. My father has sinned against you. Your people have sinned against you. And then thirdly, he prays, give me success. Um, Look in verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. So he prays God's sovereignty, human responsibility, and then he prays for him to have success in what he is going to do. There are three things that, that, we are, uh, that are revealed to us in this. Nehemiah truly believes in the sovereignty of God. He really believes that God is in control of all things. He isn't just paying lip service to that. Oh yeah, God's in control of this. But he really believes that God is in control. If, if Jerusalem is in ruin, God is in control. If Jerusalem prospers, it's because God is in control. But he also believes in human depravity. He believes that sin is so bad that God must judge it. But then he doesn't stop there. He also believes that God is truly good, that he's gracious and kind, and that the only hope for Jerusalem and for the church is for God, the God of grace, to save his church. And he also truly believes that God uses servants and people like Nehemiah for the saving and the building up of his church. Those are the things that we see from this, from this prayer. It's an amazing thing, the sovereignty of God and human responsibility all at once. And then it's also this prayer of, Lord, give me success. He prays for the Lord to give him success in what he is going to do. We will pray, we will, we will pray this way more often than not. We will see a problem and we'll see a problem. We'll say, Lord, I see this problem. you got to do something about this. Lord, we, we need this thing fixed. What are you going to do? But Nehemiah doesn't pray that way. He says, Lord, there's a problem. Give me success in what I am going to do. This isn't just a very generic prayer. This is a specific prayer for God to give success to this man for the plans that he is going to make and the things that he is going to do. And that leads us to the third point. We see an honest audacity here. Uh, Nehemiah is very audacious in this prayer because what he's saying is, Lord, I'm going to do something for you. He stands up and he says, I'm going to do this thing and I need you to give me success. But it's audacious and it's a little bit presumptuous, but it's honest because he understands in order for him to have any success whatsoever, God is the one that has to give that success. You see, Nehemiah can't just will that 
kind of success. That's the way that we tend to think. We tend to think that if, if we're going to have success, we've got to be really good. We've got to use all of our ability and do the best that we can do. But Nehemiah doesn't believe that. He believes that in order for him to have success, God is the one that's going to have to use him to do it. Nehemiah takes stock of who he is. Now, that last little uh, thing that we see in verse 11, that last little part, it's kind of a weird part of the verse where he says this. He's been praying this incredible prayer, and then he stops and he says, Now I was a cupbearer to the king. That's a strange little thing to throw in there, isn't it? A little tidbit. It's important, but it's kind of weird because it doesn't follow along. Why does it matter that he was a cupbearer to the king? Well, here is a Jewish man who has a very important position, right? The cupbearer to the king. He was the one that was responsible for tasting all of the food before the king tasted it or for drinking the wine before the king drank it. Why? Because that was probably the favorite way of killing a king in the ancient days. As a matter of fact, uh, the king that was serving right now, his dad was killed by somebody poisoning his wine. So that's an important thing for Nehemiah to do. Every time before the king ate, Nehemiah would eat the king's food or drink the king's wine to make sure that the king didn't die. That's an important position. And yet he was a slave. He was a slave man to a pagan king. He had no rights in and of himself. He had an important position, but as far as his person, he was not very important. The cupbearer was an important job, but as a slave, he was not an important person. But you see the peculiar grace of God here. You have a foreign man in this very important position. Is that a coincidence? You never put a foreigner in this kind of important position because, of course, he would want the king dead so that his people can rise up. But that's not the kind of man that Nehemiah was. Now, why was Nehemiah the man that he was? It's because God made him into that man, a man that could be trusted before the pagan king. Not only that, but slaves in in this day, these kinds of slaves that served in pagan courts, they were eunuchs. They were castrated so that they would not try to take over the place of the king or kill the king. It tried to make them docile. Here is a Jewish man who was... A eunuch serving in the king or serving in this pagan king's palace. And I want you to think um, probably Nehemiah did not want for that to happen. Okay. And he probably would have been thinking to himself, God, I've been faithful to you, and yet you are doing this to me. What possible, possible good could come out of this? And here you have Nehemiah, the eunuch, the slave serving the king. And all of it is because God has placed him exactly where he needs to be at exactly the right time because there are no accidents in God's plan. There are no coincidences. And neither are you here this morning by accident. Neither are you here because of just some happy accident of history that places you in Clinton, Louisiana at 1152 on a Sunday morning, on one of the coldest Sunday mornings that there ever will be in South Louisiana. This is not an accident that you are here. You are here by the plan and design of God. You are here by God's plan and foresight that goes back all the way to the foundations of the earth so that you can hear about what he is doing in his church and how you can fit into that. 
Isn't that an amazing thing that the God of all creation, the God of heaven and earth, who created the foundations of the world and everything in it, planned out for you to be here thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years ago just to hear this sermon. That's mind-blowing. <laughs> That's mind-blowing to think about. And by God's design, guess what? You are exactly who God wants you to be. Man or a woman, child, adult, elderly, young, successful, not successful, right? Um, humble, proud, or arrogant, not that that's a good thing, but right, you are exactly who God wants you to be by his grace. And he has placed you here for some incredible purpose. Nehemiah is the kind of man that God uses. And what is he? He's a, he's a slave. He's a eunuch. He's a nobody. And so are you. And God delights to use people like you and me for the building of his kingdom. He delights to use us. He delights to use normal people who day in and day out struggle with all of the normal stuff that we struggle with. The Lord delights to use us. And I'm thinking of Isaiah here in Isaiah chapter 6 when he sees the glory of God. And, and God says, who will I send to share the good or share really the bad news of the destruction of Israel? That's what Isaiah's message. Who will I send? And Isaiah says, send me. If you're here this morning, God is saying, who will I send? If you know who Jesus Christ is, then your answer can only be, Here I am, send me. And we have a better message than Isaiah had because we have Jesus Christ. I want to conclude in this way very quickly. I want to say Jesus is the better Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a foreshadowing of the coming of Christ. Nehemiah is going to go back and build the walls of Jerusalem. Jesus is going to go, and just like Nehemiah, he he weeps over Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus prays for success in his ministry. but, But as Jesus prays for success... His success is to go and die. It's to go and die for you and for me. Jesus is the better um, Nehemiah. And that reminded me of Lord of the Rings as I was preparing this. Um, it always reminds me of Lord of the Rings, right? The, the little hobbits at the, 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 um, the end of the first movie, the hobbits are there and they're carrying the ring. And, and, and Gandalf gets all the hobbits together and he's like, look, we got to have a group of people. We need a strong man to come forth and to carry the ring into Mordor, to, to, to throw the ring into Mordor. And all of the men start fighting and saying, we'll do it, we'll do it, we'll do it because they want the glory. And only the hobbit stands up and says, we'll do it because we want what's right Well, the good news is you don't have to be the hobbit. Jesus is the hobbit that takes the ring into Mordor that kills the sin forever and ever and ever. But what happens after the hobbit stands up and says, I'm going to do that thing, all of these men say, we will help in that mission. We need men and women to stand up and say, we will help in the mission of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus also is our better dwelling place. He is our better Jerusalem. Uh, I don't want to think over these next few weeks about how we can make this a more comfortable place for us to come and worship with each other. I want us to think about how it is we can make this the place where Jesus Christ is proclaimed in his glory. Jesus never promised us comfort this side of heaven. But in Jesus Christ we have rest here and now. So if you have found that rest... I do want to call you to work for the sake of Christ.
And then finally, I want to remind you, because this supper we're about to partake in is a reminder that the righteousness of Jesus Christ is ours. By grace, we have been counted as righteous before uh, the holiness of God. And it's only because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And the Lord's Supper reminds us that it's by his stripes that we are healed and that we have a standing with God. We're going to work to build the church of Jesus Christ because he has done all of the work that we need to stand before him forever and ever. Let's pray.